Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing. This is episode 598. This is the weekly podcast about slow flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This show is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free online directory to more than 850 florists, shops, and studios who design with local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Farm Girl Flowers. Farm Girl Flowers delivers iconic burlap wrap bouquets and lush, abundant arrangements to customers across the U.S., supporting U.S. flower farms by purchasing more than $10 million of U.S.-grown fresh and seasonal flowers and foliage annually. Discover more at farmgrowflowers.com. And thank you to the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, a farmer-owned cooperative committed to providing the very best the Pacific Northwest has to offer in cut flowers, foliage, and plants. The Growers Market's mission is to foster a vibrant marketplace that sustains local flower farms and provides top quality products and services to the local floral industry. Visit them at seattlewholesalegrowersmarket.com. A few weeks ago, Slow Flowers and our publishing partner, Bloom Imprint, released the 2023 Slow Flowers Floral Insights and Industry Forecast. We called our first insight Non-Floral Florals, acknowledging the broadening plant palette for cut flower growers and florists who are adopting all types of botanical ingredients, from mushrooms and vegetables to forage materials to non-traditional plants such as native species. We highlighted today's guest in that insight, and I'm thrilled that you can meet her and learn more. Based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Slow Flowers member Alex Kacheri of Sealy Farm has introduced her floral customers at the Michigan Flower Growers Cooperative to native perennials suitable as cut flowers. Through a farmer-rancher grant from North Central Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education, the project has trialed more than 20 species of native herbaceous flowers and foliage plants to determine their value and marketability in the wholesale floral industry. According to Alex, these plants, which include such beauties as gentian, black-eyed Susan, blue flag iris, joe pieweed, and swamp milkweed, well, they support a wildlife base and pollinators and are more drought and flood tolerant than their non-native counterparts. She says, as cut flower crops, when planted in their desired conditions, native plants require less added water, fertility, and pesticides than traditional crops, and they offer a sustainable option for growers. I'm excited to share this conversation as we dig a little deeper into Alex's research and what she's learned. And you'll find all kinds of resources at our show notes to back up what she's shared. And I look forward to telling you more about that after the interview. Let's jump right in and learn from Alex. Well, hello, everyone. I'm so excited to be here in the virtual studio with Alex Kachari of Sealy Farm. Hi, Alex. Hi, Deborah. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Happy to oh, talk you to bet. You. you bet. And um, 
Alex is from the Ann Arbor, Michigan area, and she and her husband, Mark Nowak, have Sealy Farm, which doesn't have the word flowers in it. So first of all, tell us why that is. <laughs> yeah, well, we started uh, just growing vegetables. That was how we began, actually mostly salad greens. That was our first real crop and um, added flowers in our second year and have been doing it ever since. That was uh, 12 years ago. Wow. Wow. I love the about story on your website. I've been reading them a lot lately because I'm teaching this creative writing course for florists and flower farmers and everybody is a little freaked out about writing their about story, but yours is so wonderful because you talk about what's behind the name of your farm and how you and Mark came to farming. So just give us a little, little shorthand version of that. I would love people to know more about you. Yeah, that's funny you mentioned that because when I look at our website analytics, our about page is always the highest hits of all the pages on our site, which really surprises me, but it just goes to show that that's what people are looking for. You know, that yeah, they want to know the farmer. Yeah, I love that. So you wrote it? Um, yeah, I did a, a long time ago. I probably should update it now. But um, yeah, we we started our farm uh, 12 years ago um, in 2011. And before that had worked on various other farms um, in the East Coast, the West Coast and internationally through the Woofing program, um, oh, yeah. which is a great, great program for travel and farming. Um, and we uh we just kind of dove in. We had both done other lines of work before farming. I um, had a short career in journalism in my 20s in New York City and uh, really just found a love for, you know, being outdoors and, and, and doing this work. Oh, that's wonderful. And you met on a farm or some kind of homestead that was called Sealy. Is that how, how you kept the name? So we met, we met before that, but that okay. was a formative experience for us in the Hudson Valley, um, working on the original Sealy family homestead and um, mm. never looked back. Mm-hmm. So why Michigan? Was that a family connection or, um, I mean, it's probably a little harder to farm in Michigan than Hudson Valley, but I'm not quite sure about the zones. Yeah. Um, my husband is from Ann Arbor, so we moved here Um shortly before we started our business and we're uh, zone 6a so we're in southeast michigan which is probably one of the more temperate parts of the state um i mean today it's 56 degrees which is insane (laughs) so we're having you are literally 10 degrees colder than seattle today that's we had snow last night yeah wow yeah huh well i saw on your website that you pretty much open for business in april so that's you're working now probably getting a lot of stuff seeded and, um, you know, both, both edibles and flowers at this point, right? Yeah. Our, our heated propagation house is going, um, we do considerable retail sales of nursery stock between April and June. So I grow a lot of, um, perennials and annuals, herbs and veggies for home gardeners that we sell in our greenhouse here and at the farmer's market. So, um, we're, yeah, knee deep in potting okay. mix and seeds and cuttings and all of that. <laughs> You're cranking it. Well, thanks for squeezing me in. I was I'm delighted that we could talk. Um, I will just let everyone know that Alex is a past guest of the podcast. Um, she and Amanda Mauerman were on. I want to say three years ago or so uh, to talk about the Michigan Flower Growers Cooperative, and that I will share a link to that interview in our show notes because that kind of gives a little bit of the origin story of 
launched, you were one of the founding members of that, right? Yeah. Wow. Well, this sort of factors into what we're going to talk about today and that I, I heard about what you were doing through Sue McCleary. She mentioned it on something, some call I was on. I think it was a call about invasive, invasive species that Becky Feesby had put together. And um, Sue, uh, everyone may know she's a phenomenal floral designer and floral artist, but she's very experimental and she loves her farmers at the Michigan uh, Flower Growers Cooperative. So she mentioned that you were doing this project, Alex, uh, involving native plants and I was as cut flowers. And I was so fascinated by it. And so I rang you up and asked you to tell me about it. And it's worth a whole episode. So um, I don't know, where should we start? How did, how did this idea come to you? Have you, you've probably been growing plants that are considered native to your region as cuts like informally, right? Yeah. So um, once we purchased our farm property, we really felt like we could invest in perennials. We'd been growing mostly annuals until then and, uh, you know, started planting the staples, peonies and roses and, you know, the things that people know of as cut flowers. Um, But we've always, you know, wanted to branch out from there. We have, have been heavily investing in perennials for about five or six years now. And I'm always trying something new. And um, we we started planting a lot of native species because um, we have a very challenging soil here. It's like a heavy, wet clay. Mm. Um, sometimes it can be flooded in areas. So I was really looking for those problem-solving plants. And, I mean, natives are, you know, just the definition of problem solvers. Um, so... There's a, there's a few tried and true natives that I loved, but I, I really wanted the opportunity to explore more and see what's out there. So um, in 2019, I applied for a grant through the um, North Central Region uh, SARE, which is uh, an acronym for Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Entity. And um, it's a grant program I've always had my eyes on. Um, it's just you know, nine or ten thousand dollars for a farmer to research something for two mm. years and sort of try it out in the marketplace. And um, I, it, it came to me that this would be a good opportunity to really, you know, buy in some plant material and really trial some of these plants and also share them with the flower community and get that you know important feedback from the florists of does this work for you? Is it does it hold up in water? you know, does it not shed pollen, you know, all the things that matter, because obviously, you know, if, if there's no appreciation for these plants in the marketplace, we're just spinning our wheels growing them, we can enjoy them for their natural beauty. But, you know, I was really looking at, you know, can they be used in floral design and, and then put into sort of, you know, production agriculture and grown, you know, in a, in a commercial way. Hmm. Um, So that was sort of the idea Mm -hmm. Well, you got the grant, and when you say it was a two-year grant, did you start? Have you worked on this for for the from like 20, 2020 to twenty twenty one, or did it go twenty twenty one to twenty twenty two? I know you're kind of wrapping it up right now. Yeah, um, so I I just submitted the final report, so it was mostly a twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one project. Okay, so year wow. one twenty twenty was a lot of you know sourcing plug. I mostly purchased in plugs and some bare root plant material. We have a couple great native plant nurseries right here in Michigan that I could drive and and pick up from. Um, I also use North Creek Nurseries in Pennsylvania as a great source. And um, year one was really getting things established, getting those Uh plugs in the ground, watered in, you know, 
Um, and then year two, which was last year, was the fun part, really seeing everything in bloom, you know, cutting those bunches and, um, and, and trying them out in the market. And I distributed, I think it was 138 bunches of free flowers to florists through the Michigan Flower Co-op. Um, and just asking, hey, would you fill out this survey, you know, about all the qualities of this plant? You know, what do you think are the best uses for it? Or maybe it doesn't work for you at all. Wow, that's amazing. And how many florists do you think uh, took those? I mean, 137, like that's, some people took more than one bunch probably to play with. Yeah, it's the harvest varied depending on the mm-hmm. crop. Um, some people took a, a bunch of every variety I brought that year. Some, you know, it was just kind of hit or miss who was at the market. That Got day. it. Yeah. Um, but I, I just said, you know, please give me feedback on this. And some people sent me photos of the designs that they made with the flowers. So it was That's it was invaluable getting that. And it's so smart to focus on that subset of florists because they're already interested in Michigan grown flowers. And so this is just even taking that evolution further to say these are native Michigan grown flowers. Um and I guess that we should probably define native because I'm sure it has a lot of definitions. It's sort of like sustainable. It's kind of an elastic word. How, how did you, how do you interpret it or explain it to people for your region? Yeah. Um, so I, I looked up the USDA definition because I wanted something to stand on there. And I have shared that on my website. I don't have it memorized. But, oh, that's okay. We'll, we'll pull it up and share it with people. Yeah. yeah um, but really when I was looking at these plants, I was looking at what is their range and some native plants have a, a massive range. I mean, some, many of the plants in my trial can, you know, occur naturally, you know, anywhere east of the Mississippi from Maine to the mid Atlantic. Wow. Um, and yeah. sometimes further south than that. So um, they might not be ones that um, are found like prevalently in the wild here in our region, but they are within the native range. Yeah. And I think the biggest complaint that I've heard, and even coming out of the gardening industry is it's hard to get native plants into production cultivation, like on a, in some, depending on the varieties, sometimes they're just, they're happy in their place and they don't want to be, you know, messed around with or propagated. Did, did you have that issue or, um, um with some of the species, so I, I trialed a lot of um, milkweeds because I just they're so gorgeous and just you know valuable invaluable for the pollinator um, population, and those are you know a taprooted plant, and so they just really resent you know transplanting. So I tried to get young plugs, get them in early and, and established. So mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. there were some challenges with that, and sometimes sourcing plant material can be tough too. Although there are more and more native nurseries now. Yeah, yeah. And the native, I mean, I was trying to think of your region. It's it's not, it. what do you, is it like Upper Plains or what, what would Michigan fall under in terms of a, yeah, a I, geological I, we're, region? We're often called Upper Midwest. Um, okay. So, you know, grouped with, but, you know, it's such a big state. So, you know, like we probably span three distinct, you know, horticultural zones, you mm-hmm. know, from, from three to six, if you go up to the UP. So um, we are probably maybe more grouped with, the lower Midwest being here in Southeast Michigan, we're close to Ohio yeah, and that kind of climate. Um, yeah. Well, I was really impressed with the list of, um, of varieties that you had, and you do have them posted on your website and under the native cut flower project, which we'll share, but, oh, you do have a definition of what is a native plant. So I appreciate that. And then this trial plant list, there's like 25 
or 30 varieties on here. Um, and I will share this with the, um, with our viewers and, and our listeners, but yes, you, I see you've got milkweed, butterfly weed. We're using the common names here, Joe pie weed, um, and gentian, blue flag, iris, lupin. And then some that really, you know, I've heard of, but I'm not familiar with like wind quinine, um, you know, that's just, I can't wait to see photos of these things because there's some of these sound just really lovely. And some we know about like goldenrod, uh, obviously, solidago. So, so talk a little bit about what, what you learned and like, who are some of your favorites on this list? Yeah, well, so I started out with a few favorites that I've grown for years. Um, like Bluntooth Mountain Mint is a fantastic uh, native plant. It's a foliage. It has an intense minty aroma. Mm. And the designers, I've, I've been selling it for several years now, and the designers just eat it up. Um, it has kind of a blue-green, soft, you know, heart-shaped oh, weed. And oh, the neat. pollinators love it. So um, that's a great one. And it has a long harvest window, unlike some of these plants. Um, Northern Sea Oats um, is another great, you know, very decorative seed head uh grass yeah. that looks like an oat like a flattened oat yes i love that is that chesmanthium i remember learning looking that up because it's a it, it's available here in the uh, seattle market too some of the local growers are are producing it um did you of this list that you have posted are these all the winners like did you have some that you had to kind of decline um trying to get into the marketplace yeah so i i'm Right now, putting together sort of my final, you know, the winners, so to speak, of the trial. Um, so it's it's less than this list. You know, the mm -hmm. list is is everything that I tried. Okay. And a number of plants did not survive or even perform for me. Some of them survived, but I didn't have any material I could even harvest. It was too mm -hmm. short or not mm -hmm. flowering properly. So. Mm -hmm. That's great. And the grant is allowing you to do sort of an educational component that you're going to share um, through the Michigan Flower Growers Flower Cooperative, or how are you going to share that? Yeah, so um, probably by the time this airs, um, we're going to have our um, the biggest part of the the marketing component of this was I developed an availability calendar um, that's meant to be a useful tool for both growers and florists. Um, I worked with a graphic designer, and we um, we just included all of these native plants, and then. I'll, I'll say, you know, it was, it was also my pet project to include a lot of other common perennials in there because as a grower, um, growing perennials for cut flowers, one of the frustrations I've had over the years is some of these really special perennials like uh, geum or oryngium or columbine or um, gypsophilia, things that grow really well in our climate and are so resilient. Sometimes their harvest window is 10 days or 14 wow. days. And wow. so... For a designer or florist to be able to rely on and plan for and be aware of that window, I really wanted a tool um, where they could sort of look at a calendar and, and have a general harvest window for each perennial. And the idea behind that is it just encourages, you know, the purchase and use of perennial cut flowers in their natural, you know, blooming season mm -hmm. um, and empower, empower florists to sort of, you know, buy even more locally. So, well, you know, I, 
I'm wondering if there's people asking, why does this matter? I mean, I feel like after speaking with you when we did the pre-interview, I there's like a really strong reason to grow natives from the farmer's point of view. I'd love to have you talk about that. But I think from a florist's point of view, florists who care about sustainable practices should also say this is part of their, you know, their value system is to try to support what their farmers are growing and um, use them in creative ways. So uh, your, your reason you've mentioned the pollinators and a bit of, t- uh, a couple of times you've mentioned your crappy soil. So you're probably doing a lot of regenerative work on your farm. Uh, how is the, the native crop kind of a, a improving that? Yeah, well um, I mean, they're just more resilient plants overall. Um, I mean, we grow a lot of, you know, seed grown annuals, lisianthus and, you know, dahlias and all the, the divas like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, as a grower, I just have such a deep love for perennials and specifically native perennials because they're so resilient and reliable. They don't need as much water. They don't need, you know, sometimes they can be finicky about soil conditions and all that, but um they're really, you know, a, a carefree uh, mm. plant. And it's sort of a rewilding of the landscape, too. So um, kind of, you know, putting plants that are endemic to a region, obviously encourage all the fauna of that region, the pollinators, you know, mammals, other wildlife species that rely on those. So, um, you know, I think Doug Talmy has been one of the mo- more outspoken people about, you know, just the importance of bringing these species, you know, back to our landscapes and getting rid of the cultivated, um, yeah. you know, alien species. Um, and I think you're right that, you know, florists who have a sustainability, you know, perspective in, in what they're doing, you know, I just hope that they understand, you know, just the value for these crops, you know, to, to a landscape and, and to a grower. Well, when we spoke earlier, I was, you, something you said really struck me. First of all, how much acreage do you guys uh, farm on? We have uh, 12 tillable acres. Okay. Is this a big section that you've devoted to the perennial natives or um, is it sort of integrated throughout? So the trial plot is, is in one section. Um, it's probably, all combined, maybe a half of an acre, and it's integrated. So we had another project funded by the USDA, which was an alley cropping project. So there are woody species interplanted with these herbaceous perennials. Oh my gosh, what a brilliant yeah. idea. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, the one shortfall of the grant is that I could only trial herbaceous species just because it's only two years and that, you know, it wasn't a long enough turnaround to be able to trial woodies, but there's so many native woody plants that that could be and should be on this list. So the USDA grant helped fund the, the trial of woodies, and then you interspersed the the native perennials grow between the woody rows? Yeah. So oh, the, brilliant. Yeah, the USDA grant was for alley cropping, which is this concept of growing sort of like longer crops. It's often used in the South. Um, people plant pecan trees with hay, um, passes, you know, patches in between. Um, so, but in our situation, we planted woody native species for cutting interspersed with the, the herbaceous species. And the idea being that the herbaceous perennials will come into production much sooner than the woodies and they'll sort of collectively create a really diverse habitat. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. That sounds fabulous. It also sounds so much like what the old definition of permaculture is because 
those plants just keep producing for you. And so your labor, one would hope, it, you know, becomes lower every year. You put your labor into your annual crops, but then there's these perennials just given the gift of beauty and not requiring too much, hopefully too much of your help. I could be wrong. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah, they're they're much more carefree. Um, you said something really interesting, though, about how you're going to, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but like harvest, say, two-thirds of the crop and leave a third for the pollinators or some something that was really sort of, it's not like paying it forward um, for your own uh, farm health. Is that a generalization or like how are you, t- how are you, keeping keeping some for the for the pollinators and, and then the rest for the marketplace. Yeah, I think that's exactly right how you said it. And I, it's an important part of how I want to share with growers about this trial. Um, these crops cannot be treated like a, you know, clear cut harvest every single stem kind of crop um, because then, you know, we're not reaping the benefit of having planted bonitas in the first place. Mm, I mean, mm-hmm. oftentimes it is the flower or the seed head of the plant that is providing a food source. And so if you cut that down, it sort of defeats the whole purpose. So I obviously don't want people row cropping natives and clear cutting them for sale. Um, this is more about integrating them into the landscape. And they don't even need to be planted in a traditional, you know, production setting. These could be in your hedgerows or, you know, put into a border maybe around the farmhouse or, you know, something that you, That's you true. cut a little, leave a little. Yeah. So are you doing that? Like you're, when I, the two-thirds, one-third, that applies to a plant, not the entire row, right? Yeah. So I'm leaving yeah. some on each plant just so that, the stand itself is, you know, productive and available. And, you know, I know a lot of pollinators, um, you know, are attracted to like scent or color or form and just making sure there's a little bit of that over the whole section. Oh my gosh. Well, are you, um, I don't think you're certified organic at Sealy Farm, are you? We, we were up until two years ago. Really? Wow. So your practices haven't changed. You're just not filling out the paperwork. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the pollinator uh, life must just be teeming. I mean, the butterflies alone coming for that milkweed must just be amazing to watch. I mean, what have you kind of can to share anecdotally that you've seen happen because of this project? Yeah, um, you're right. I've, I've observed a lot of activity in the trial plot and, and all over our farm. We have a lot of wild spaces that hmm. we encourage um, we collected a ton of monarch caterpillars this fall for our son's school class. Um, they hatched them in the classroom and sort of, you know, and got oh. to set them free. And I remember oh, the teacher fun. saying, like, where in the world did you find so many monarchs? I said, well, I just planted, you know, 300 young milkweed plants. So <laughs> <laughs> we're a magnet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Um you know, I was wondering what you thought about whether a project like this could be replicated in other regions. Like what advice would you give a flower farmer or grower who is intrigued and, and maybe has to start from scratch and like, how do they research what would be a, a candidate for their for their farm or their marketplace? Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of great information online. Um, I also think, you know, finding a native plant nursery in your state or in your region is invaluable. So when I made this list of trial plants, that those were some of the first people I called um, mm. and, and, and looking at their plant lists and, and what they made available. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm thinking about in my state, the Washington uh, Native Plant Society has this massive sale every fall and every spring. And these are, you can, at that sale, you can get things that the retail nurseries don't have because, you know, they might have a very small native plant s- selection. So I think you're right. Even joining the Native Plant Society and just starting to see if they want you to trial things, you know, that are more viable for their flowers. I mean, really, it's the foliage and flowers uh, ornamentally that that the florists are interested in. So it's kind of like you're 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 trying to find the diamonds in the rough that that really can hit all the check all those boxes for the florists. Um, what have what have you seen in terms of some? I know you're share, sharing some photos, but like how are designers using some of these um, special new natives? I some you said are standards like the mountain mint you you had that but mm-hmm. what are some of the fun surprises you had yeah well um I, I mean everyone loves the lupin lupin is such a special plant it's that true bluish purple color and so you know they get really excited when that comes out and it's such a playful you know wiry stem um the blue flag iris was a surprising you know hit. it's a tiny little almost looks like iris sibirica um, little blue with some yellow splotches on each petal. Um, so yeah, people, people had a lot of fun and, you know, definitely responded, you know, some things were a little bit of a tougher sell like Rudbeckia and Solidago. I think those are known, they're kind of considered weedy or common, you know, it's something you sort of see everywhere by the side of the road. So those were, you know, a little less exciting. Yeah. But imagine somebody doing a modern installation of on mass, like then it would have a completely different, like artful vibe. And, and yeah, it's just a matter of time before we see what the designers do with all these things. Yeah. That's cool. Um, well, how are you going to move on from here? Are you going to keep, and cause now your, your grant is over and you're going to start educating people. Will you, do you have other native plants you want to trial like the woodies? Because it sounds like that's part two of this. Yeah, so we have some woodies planted in the alley cropping section that I hope to gather data on. Um, I mean, as I've been doing this grant and people have gotten word of it, I, everyone is selling, sending me their favorite native plants that they like for cutting that were not on my trial. So I oh, feel wow. like the list could be doubled for, <laughs> for the next two years. Oh, wow. Really That's great. great. Yeah. If only you have the time because of your mix of edibles and uh, flowers, are you 50-50 or how do it's you It's about 50-50. It? Yeah. Wow. Wow. And is it just the two of you or do you have employees on the farm? Um, we have some part-time seasonal help, but it's mostly just the two of us. Wow. Yeah. And do you do design yourself, Alex? I, I dabble a little, but I've really steered more towards, um, you know, selling selling wholesale to florists and, and farmer's market bunches. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the growing is what I think gets your, it gets your heart to sing. Like you love that part. Yeah, I love it. And, and, Uh, you know, another thing I really hope for the future with this, too, is giving native nurseries another sort of selling point for their plants. I would love to see native nurseries curate like a list of plants that work for cut flowers and arranging because what a great way to bring those plants to a new demographic. Right. Especially the home gardener. So your infographic and your posters and all that will be available to the native plant. Um, nurseries that you've worked with and their customers. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's such a great public service you've done and it's obviously uh, enhanced your business um, as well, but you're sharing it so widely. Other growers will probably start 
adding some of these uh, varieties to their to their mix as well. That's the hope. Yeah. yeah. And I'm seeing so many more growers and florists talking about natives. And so I, like you said, I think it is, it's a rising trend and I can only hope it, you know, keeps going. It, yeah. And I think, I think this whole idea too, that, um, if the florist is equipped with the knowledge to share with their customers, there's a way to get customers excited. I, I could see a wedding done with all native, you know, Michigan plants for at some really special venue where there was this, you know, real conscious decision to just source locally or whatever. I mean, there are those magical couples every now and then <laughs> who really <laughs> want to do that. And, um, what a great fit for, um, I don't know, a Michigan grown farm to table meal. And then, wow, you have Michigan native flowers on the table. Oh, that's exciting. Do you open your farm up to, you said you do retail sales on your farm, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, we have a little greenhouse. We sell plants in the spring and we, we sell a lot of native plants for home gardeners to, to put, you know, in their gardens. Uh, we also sell cut flower bunches too. Oh, you do. Okay, great. So that starts in April. Yes. And how many days a week do you open it up? It's open seven days a week. It's sort of an old school self-serve pull up by the side of the road farm stand. <laughs> and and then on the honor system or do you have to staff it? Yeah, it's on the honor system. I mean, we're always around. So if people have questions or something, you know, those have been some of the best conversations is, you know, someone grabs you down at the farm stand and then you end up talking about, you know, what's best for their garden and they have shade and they're looking for this. So. Oh, that's so great. Oh, I wish I could visit. My sister-in-law lives in Detroit in an apartment. So if I come to visit her, I'll, I'll get her to bring me out on a road trip uh, to get her a bouquet because that, yeah, that oh, be it's on my wish list. Um, Alex, this has been so great. And when we post this um, at slowflowerspodcast.com, we will share um, photos that Alex has shared with me, but also links to that uh, her website and some of these lists. And then um, people can follow along because pretty soon you'll be doing the big rollout uh, promotion with the Michigan Flower Growers uh, Cooperative, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Anything else I didn't ask you that you want to make sure we talk about? No, I think that's it. Thanks thanks for your attention to this. I appreciate oh, it. I find it really inspiring and I hope it inspires folks in other regions to kind of look more closely at the native uh, options that um, they're probably just there to be developed into, you know, a cut flower diva, as you said. Yeah. <laughs> thanks a lot. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Deborah. Bye-bye. Bye. so much for joining us today. You'll find the replay video and other resources discussed in the show notes for episode 598 at slowflowerspodcast.com. I hope you are as inspired as I am to explore native perennials uh, from your region for the cut flower design palette that we all want to have. Our next sponsor thank you goes to Longfield Gardens, which provides home gardeners with high-quality flower bulbs and perennials. Their online store offers plants for every region and every season, from tulips and daffodils to dahlias, caladiums, and amaryllis. Check out the full catalog at Longfield Gardens. That's longfield-gardens.com. In other news, I have a lot of thanks to share this week. 
Valentine's Day was filled with flowers and opportunities to share our Slow Flowers message. We received a lot of media attention last week, including three major mentions in the New York Times, in David Byrne's Reason to be Cheerful newsletter, and in the international environmental publication, Hakai. I sent out an email blast to those on our mailing list to share the excerpts and the links, but if you've missed it, uh, I will include the recap link in our show notes for episode 598. Suffice it to say, it was a wonderful week of sharing the story of sustainable flowers, even at a time when people are doing the exact opposite during a major floral holiday. We also wrapped up five amazing days at the floral stage of the Northwest Flower and Garden Festival last week in Seattle, where Slow Flowers produced daily hands-on floral design workshops using local and domestic botanicals. 150 students participated and hundreds more were in the audience to learn from our member design instructors, including Riz Reyes of RHR Horticulture and Heronswood Gardens, a past Slow Flowers Summit speaker. Hannah Morgan of Fortunate Orchard, who many of you met during our November Slow Flowers Meetup, Kiara Hancock of K. Hancock Design, a past podcast guest, and other past podcast guests, Nick Songseng Shantara and Tracy Yang of Yarnco Farm. Tracy will also be speaking at the 2023 Slow Flowers Summit coming up. We also hosted friend of Slow Flowers, horticulturist Tyra Chenault of W.W. Seymour Conservatory in Tacoma, Washington. I met many fans and listeners who introduced themselves and many other aspiring flower farmers and florists who we hope will join our community very soon. It was an incredible and inspiring week, and the Northwest Flower and Garden Festival theme, Spring Vibes Only, it was exactly what we all needed right now. Our final sponsor thank you goes to Rooted Farmers. Rooted Farmers works exclusively with local growers to put the highest quality specialty cut flowers in floral customers' hands. When you partner with Rooted Farmers, you are investing in your community and you can expect a commitment to excellence in return. Learn more at rootedfarmers.com. Thanks so much for joining me today. The Slow Flowers Podcast is a member-supported endeavor, downloaded more than one million times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of our domestic cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. If you're new to our weekly show or our long-running podcast, check out all of our resources at slowflowerssociety.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of The Slow Flowers Show and The Slow Flowers Podcast. The Slow Flowers Podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more slow flowers on the table, one stem, one vase at a time. And next week will be very, very special. It will be our 500th ever episode of the Slow Flowers Podcast. I can't wait to start celebrating, and I'll meet you then. Music